0: Lord, first this morning before we pray specifically about our time with you, I want to pray for a brother who is uh, preparing to preach probably as we sit down this morning at at a local church. A good friend and a brother, Greg Fields, I want to pray for his worship. Uh, I want to pray for his marriage. I want to pray for his parenting, all the shepherding that goes on all week long, the wise instrument that you have uh, Shaped and honed uh, in his insight and discernment. I'm just so grateful for a friend like Greg. And I'm grateful on behalf of the church that he shepherds, that you would shepherd a people so well and uh, that you would expose the truth so consistently and surgically through Greg. Lord, I'm thankful, too, for Tracy and the sweet blessing that she is to so many people. Lord, I pray that their time this morning and the Word together as a people will be rich. Pray, too, that we can cheer for each other, not just for Greg and Tracy in Westminster, but for all the Christian churches in this community that we can truly cheer for each other. Ask your forgiveness for that secret competition. It so easily rears its ugly head, or doesn't, and just sits dormant and quiet, but influences us to where we don't want the best for other churches. Lord, I pray ask your forgiveness for that. I pray for your greatness and your fame and your renown to be enjoyed in Greenville because the people of God are are salty, and bright, and aromatic. Lord, I pray that we can be teammates in this community, enjoying you together. Or as far as these next few minutes that we spend together, I am hugely um, amazed that you would give us the sweet privilege of listening in on a prayer between Son and Father. Lord, I'm grateful that you have, uh, in some ways, um, worked it in us to where we've earned this morning and the next few weeks and months that we spend together in John chapter 17, that we've done the work To have special insight there, but we give the Holy Spirit all the glory and recognize that all things that are related to you are discerned spiritually through the Spirit. I pray for the Spirit's involvement and work this morning to expose a sermon that's bigger than me and that we can engage it and listen in a way that's bigger than we're even capable of. I pray that you will open the eyes of our hearts to the riches of the gospel in Christ. Lord, we turn this time over to you for your glory and for your name's sake. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We're in John chapter 17. Let me prepare you. You're going to need your Bibles this morning. You need them every morning we gather, but you will really, really need to do the work this morning. When I think of it, I'll give page numbers for the English Standard Version, uh, or that's the regular-sized ESV, which is like this, just kind of a regular-sized Bible, or the Pew Bible. So, if you came with a different version and you don't have a good handle on what book is where, then I would encourage you, don't, be, uh, don't feel funny about that and just grab the Bible in front of you. Uh, So you'll be able to see where we're going. You're going to need to see what we're engaging this morning. I'm going to begin by reading the prayer, and then we're going to make some uh, bird's eye observations. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, let me just give you a little bit of picture here. This is the final discourse between Christ and his disciples is finished at this point. At least in the book of John, he's done talking with them. The next scene after this prayer is the arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. I mean, we're getting toward the end of the story. We're going to spend some time in this chapter, though, considering this prayer. Jesus is praying to his Father. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I've manifested your name to the people whom you've given me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they've believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you gave me or whom you have given me, for they are yours. sanctify them in truth your word is truth as you sent me into the world so I have sent them into the world and for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth I do not ask for these only but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one just as you father are in me and I in you that they also may be in us So that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I've given to them. That they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. So that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory. That you have given me because you've loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known. That the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Man, I hope just for a second there, you're getting a sense that we have an elephant to eat. You eat an elephant a bite at a time. So we're going to, I don't know how many bites are in store. We're going to eat a couple of bites this morning. Uh, This is a prayer on the eve of his crucifixion. God the Son is having an out loud, what seems to be one-sided conversation. We don't have any recorded words from the Father back to the Son between God the Father and God the Son. And the 11, or at least John, are listening in. It's an out loud prayer that can be heard and recorded. And in some ways, I suspect that John felt like he was standing on holy ground, as I suspect that we're beginning to have a sense of right now, that we're standing on holy ground hearing a conversation between God the Son and God the Father. Jesus prays a little bit for himself at the beginning of the prayer, but mostly he's praying for his current and future followers. I'm going to break that down for you in a second. Overall, there's a theme of giving in the prayer. I read that what grace is to Paul's letters, giving is to John's gospel. If you read Paul's letters, you see grace, grace, grace. If you really read John's letter, John's gospel and you're paying attention, you see grace giving all over the place. In this chapter, there are 17 references to giving. 13 of them have to do with the Father giving the Son something, giving Him authority, giving Him words, giving Him work to do, giving Him followers. We're going to talk about that in large part this morning. Followers who would hear and recognize the shepherd's voice, and also giving him work to complete. And the next four references to giving have to, deal, have to do with the son giving his current and future followers something, giving them eternal life, giving them the father's words, and giving them the father's glory. Most of the uses of the word give or references to the word give are the perfect tense verb. I shared a couple of weeks ago what that is. And I'd like for this body to understand when I use that term what that means. In the English language, we have past tense, present tense, future tense. There are probably some other tenses that you English teachers would know about, some real weird ones. But in the Greek language, there's something called the perfect tense. And it has to do with something that happened at a point in time, an event, like what we would refer to as past tense, but has effects that reverberate into the present and future. It's a sweet verb that's hard to capture in the English language. And most of these references here of forgiving or the father giving the son something and the son giving his follower something are perfect tense verbs implying that they happened as a one-time gift here cross and that they reverberate into today and tomorrow and tomorrow's church. The sweet, sweet picture Of giving. We really consider that the book of John is about gifts and giving, and one gift in particular, the gift of the Son. The most famous, probably well known passage in our Bibles, John 3 16, for God loved the world in this way, or for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. It's a book about the good news of the gift of the Son. And John 17 has a concentration on giving. The first five verses just kind of give you kind of an outline of how the prayer unfolds. The first five five verses seem to be primarily Christ praying for things regarding himself and his relationship to the Father. Verses 6 through 19, he seems to be praying especially, not exclusively, but especially for his disciples, his 11 right there with him. And then the last verses through the end of the chapter verses 20 through 26 he's praying for future followers. So that's the the crazy scandal is we're listening in on a prayer where God the Son is praying to God the Father for you. It's awesome. What I've been wrestling with this week is how to unpack this prayer. I heard of one preacher Martin Lloyd Jones that preached on this chapter for a year. I don't know that we will, but we might. We could. It's been said about John that children can wade in it and elephants can swim in it. And in John 17, you have to swim. And I don't know how long we're going to swim, but this chapter is so thick with meaning and truth that we're just going to consider it from every angle until he says to move on to the arrest of the Garden of Gethsemane. We'll know when we'll have a sense when we've squeezed every drop out of this chapter. We've been given the task of eating an elephant, and we eat an elephant a bite at a time, so today we'll take the first couple of bites. I'm going to give you a big picture plan of where we're going to go in the next few weeks. And the big picture plan, this is really just a method for unpacking this chapter. It's not the method, it's just how we're going to do it. There are different ways of unpacking it. You can do it verse by verse, you could do it thematically, The way we're going to do it is we're going to follow the five petitions that Christ makes to the Father. Here's what they are, in case you want to make kind of an outline for the next few months, not for this morning, I mean, or weeks, it could be months, for the next period of time, expanse of time. Here's the first petition, he prays for glory. The second petition, he prays for the protection of his followers. Third, he prays for the sanctification of his followers. Fourth, he prays for oneness of his followers. And fifth, he prays that his followers will be with him forever. Notice the concentration on current and future disciples. One we petition regarding himself and the rest has to do with us. And those who've gone before us. This morning, in the next few weeks, we're going to deal really with the escort of the first petition having to do with glory. In verses 1 and 2, he prays for glory, and then saturated throughout the rest of the letter, he mentions glory. I've had the crazy challenge of trying to get my hands around glory this week. I think it's one of the most difficult things I've ever studied. I talked to a couple of folks on Thursday afternoon, which is really kind of when I shut down my study to resume on Saturday. I don't try and touch it on Thursday. But at the end of the day on Thursday, I called Scott and I told him, I said, man, I don't think I've ever studied so hard and yielded so little. Because glory's hard. It's like trying to define a color define green. The only way to define green is relative other stuff. It's in between blue and yellow. It's a mixture of blue and yellow. Frogs are green. We can be green with envy. Grass is green. Trees are green. Gumby's green. We still haven't really defined green. We've just defined, tried to define it, attempted to define it relative other aspects and things around it. And that's the way glory is. I don't know that we can really define glory itself, but we can look at the facets of glory is where we're going to go in these next couple of weeks specifically to try and understand what he's praying for and what he's saying about glory. I don't want us to give this just a light treatment because that would be like defining green as the color of a frog, it's unfair to frogs, because frogs are so much more than green, and it's unfair to green, because green is so many other shades than just frog color. <laughs> right? You can tell I thought that through in advance. It would be unfair to glory to just give it a glimpse. So we're going to look at the facets of it, and the escort for those facets are going to be his initial prayer for glory and the things he says about glory through the course of the prayer. Here are those things, and I'm going to tell you, it's two of my favorite words, mishmash and hodgepodge. That's what it's going to be. Listen to the collection of requests concerning glory and statements concerning glory in this prayer. First, he asks for it. That's easy. Father, glorify your son so that the son may glorify you. Second, he says he's given glory to the father. He says, I glorified you on earth by completing your work, in verse 4. Then in verse 5, he says, Glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had before the world existed. He asks for pre creation glory to be restored. Fourth, he says he's glorified in those the Father has given him out of the world. In verse 10, he says, all mine are yours and yours are mine, and I'm glorified in them. And in verse 22, he says, the glory you gave me, I've given them. And then in verse 24, he asks that those that the Father gave him will be with him forever to see his glory. It's a hodgepodge. What we're going to do in the next few weeks is we're just con- going to consider these facets. This morning, if y'all have the goods and if I have to listen, and if I have the goods to preach it, we're going to consider the first two of facets that we mentioned there regarding glory. We're going to call them facets because we realize that it's shades or sides of something beautiful. So we'll hopefully do justice to glory in the next few weeks. Today, we're going to consider the first two glory facets. The first one being, the Son wants to be glorified so that the Father will be glorified. That in verse 1. Then it continues on into verse 2. They'll glorify each other, Father and Son, since. That's a key word. It could also be translated according to what unfolds in the rest of verse 2. So the Father doesn't glorify the Son, and the Son doesn't glorify the Father just by just saying, I glorify you. Something is happening there that brings glory to the Father from the Son and brings glory to the Son from the Father. And the sense leads us to that. Since the Father gave the Son authority to give eternal life to some. I'm going to read that again. The Son wants to be glorified so that the Father will be glorified and they're going to glorify each other since or according to the Father giving the Son authority over all flesh to give eternal life to some. All authority was granted to give eternal life to some and those some are those given to the Son by the Father. He clearly says right here. Those given to the Son by the Father. The Son will be glorified in the receiving of this authority over all flesh, and the Son will be glorified in the giving of eternal life to those the Father has given Him. Those some. This this glory. It's the first time in my Christian journey, and especially in the last few years, that I've connected glory to what he's talking about right here. This is the glory of election. I want to admit to you as a pastor and as a believer, for the last few years, although in the past few years I've learned to embrace this issue of election, I've sort of preached it sheepishly, maybe even um, Apologetically, not like apologizing for it, but almost defending it like I, I know it's hard to believe. And now I'm seeing it as his glory. His glory that he would give eternal life to some. This is the glory of election. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. I'll give you a page number here once I find it. Ephesians chapter 1, page 976. I want you to see the association between election and glory. Chapter 1, I'm beginning verse 3. This is written by Paul to a church 2,000 years ago, the church at Ephesus. We can climb into this story and imagine it's almost as if if we were around as a church 2,000 years ago, that it would be the letter of Paul to the Greenvilleites. Let's climb into it and read it as if it's our letter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the same God and Father that gives the Son some out of the world and is glorified in that. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ With every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, watch, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, this Father predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ. Predestined means that He predestined it. It means what it says. When when, when Christ is praying to the Father specifically about being glorified and saving those you've been given, that you've given me out of the world, he's speaking of these who have been predestined for adoption. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his, watch, glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. The glory of election is glorious grace. The thing that has been so crazy controversial in the church for so long is something here that Jesus is praying to the Father and saying, man, this is my glory, and this is your glory, that I'm saving those that you've given me out of the world. Look at it again in verse 11. In him... We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined, there it is is again, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise, watch, of his glory. Hoping in Christ, and I'm going to say it, by appointment, by predestined, Appointment is to the praise of his glory. Election is such a central, important thing that it unfolds once you see it on nearly every page of our New Testaments. And it's so wonderfully illustrated in our Old Testaments. Testament. Testaments, multiple Bibles. Man, it's all over it if we're looking for it. Election is so central that is sort of the language that Christ uses, listen to these references. You don't need to turn there. I just want you to listen. I'll tell you, I'll give you the reference if you want to look at it later. It's not really a crazy essential truth. It's just something that gives you a snapshot. snapshot. Matthew chapter 24, verse 22. Christ is speaking of the end times. He's just spoken about the tribulation. And he says, if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved, but for the sake of the elect those days will be cut short. Christ is referring to those who will be saved, those that he's going to save out of the world that the Father has given him as the elect. It's not some sort of agenda that somebody's pushing to teach this. That's how it's easily dismissed. Tack a name on it. Attack Calvinism or something like that on it. And man, it's easy to dismiss. But when it's passage after passage after passage, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Those are just a few snapshots. And Jesus isn't the only one that used that sort of language. Paul writing to Timothy says, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Peter uses the same language. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. It is all over our Bibles, and God is glorified in it. God is glorified in knowing you, predestining you, and choosing you before you were even born. Thank goodness it's before you were even born. Because once you're born, you prove in a matter of days that you're not worth saving. Before you were even born... He is glorified in knowing you, predestining you, and choosing you. He wrote your name in the book of life before you even took a breath. Listen to this passage from Revelation chapter 13. And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given the beast over every tribe and people and language and nation. Watch. And all who dwell on the earth will worship the beast. Then he goes on to explain all. All specifically meaning everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb that was slain. In other words, those who are going to worship the beast... Is everyone who has not been given to the Son by the Father to receive eternal life. They're going to worship the beast. Their names were not written in the book of life before time even began. God is glorified in the reality that before you ever did anything good or bad. Romans 9. God chose you. Not because of your works, lest men should boast. Ephesians 2. But because of his call and his will and his purpose, and to the praise of his glorious grace, it is his glory. God is glorified in the reality that when Christ submitted to a whip called a flagrum, when he submitted to wood, when he submitted to nails, that you were in view. I want you to hear that. God is glorified in the reality that people, specific people with specific names and specific DNA were in view when he went to that cross. He prayed for them the night before. Go back to John chapter 17. I want you to see this. God is glorified in this. I want you to see it. Christ is praying on the night before he is nailed to a cross. Hours before he goes to the cross, he says, I'm praying for them, those that you've given me out of the world. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. You've got to see that that is a very surgical prayer. He's going to the cross thinking of specific people. He is going to the cross with specific people in view. He's not going to the cross submitting to wood and nails and a flagrum, thinking, I hope this works for somebody. This is just a good, my best effort. I hope that maybe somebody will believe in me as Savior and Lord. He goes to the cross specifically the night before praying for those that the Father has given him out of the world. It is a surgical prayer prayer not for the world, i.e. everyone, but for those given him by the Father. There's an emphasis in this prayer to those that have been given him. In verse 2, the passage we're especially looking at, you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. In verse 6, I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. Verse 11, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me. Verse 12, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me, both not only the people, but the name. In verse 24, Father, this is not just those current believers. He's not just talking about his 11, because in verse 20, he shifts to praying for you. And he says this in verse 24, Father, I desire that they also, as in you, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. Man, this this prayer is so focused on those that have been given him by the Father. Turn to John chapter 6. I prayed as we were preparing to engage the word this morning, pointing out that God over the course of the last eight years has equipped us to engage this prayer rightly, and he equipped us with John chapter 6. I want to show you a couple things from John chapter 6, beginning in, one is, is in verse 44, that reconcile with this view of those who've been given to the Son by the Father, In verse 44 of chapter 6, it says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. You hear the Father's involvement in that? No one comes to the Son in a saving way unless the Father is is working it. He says it again in verse 65. I'm going to read the context surrounding it so you can see what unfolds when he says it. In verse 60, he picks up referring to something he's just said about people feeding on his flesh and drinking his blood and abiding in him. And when many of his disciples heard this, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? They knew he wasn't talking about gnawing on his arm. What they knew he was talking about was this wholehearted pursuit of Christ. And like, who can think about this? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to him, Do you take offense at this? What if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no avail. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. Watch. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe. He's not just talking about Judas. Judas. Because he says, and who it was who would betray him. He knew from the beginning who had been given him by the father. And he knew those who hadn't been given him by the father. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the father. You see the father's role in that? Watch what happens to those who are hearing this. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. That's a hard saying. Blocka, baka block-a, blocka. I can't take that saying because that makes much of God and little of me. Where's this idol of choice? We start thinking, I must be a robot. Is he saying I'm a robot? I love Jesus. That's not what he's saying. Nobody sees the Son as Savior and Lord unless the Father works it in them. No one comes to the Son except that the Father draws him. No one comes to the Son except that the Father grants it to him. And while the Son has authority over all flesh, he will grant eternal life to those that the Father has given him. Those truths all go together. They're inextricably connected. This is a very difficult concept. It's a difficult concept to preach. It's a difficult concept to hear and to process. And a lot of it has to do with who's at the center of your gospel. You or God. If you're at the center of God's gospel, then this is really hard to hear and almost virtually intolerable. He had lots of people walk away from his ministry after he said this. But if God and his glory is at the center of the gospel, then you can begin to connect with what's really being said here. Then you can really connect with how the gospel unfolds. Some of you might be thinking right now about the passage that I referenced at the beginning of the sermon, John 3, 16, on giving. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son my whole life. I spent seeing this volume love, God so being this expanse of love. And after studying the Greek and seeing some better translations, I've realized that this is God loved the world just so he gave his only son. But you might be stuck on, what I thought he loved the world. And I want you to know that God does love the world. He loves the world. That same God that prayed specifically, not for all of the world, but for those who've been given him out of the world on the eve of his crucifixion, that went to the cross thinking about those who've been given him out of the world, that he still loves the world corporately with a very specific application. God loves the world by making a way for those given him out of the world, and he's glorified in saving those. He loves the world in a corporate sense by applying it specifically, like he made a way in a man and through a man named Noah to build an ark and to climb on an ark with family, with the three stooges, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and their families. And two of every kind. He loved the world then just as much as he loves the world now. If John 3.16 were in the book of Genesis, it might read like this. For God loved the world just so. He called on Noah to build an ark that whoever got on that ark with Noah wouldn't drown, but would step out on dry ground on the other side. Yes, God loves the world in a corporate sense. With very specific application toward his elect that election you've got to know is unconditional not based on anything in them that man should boast it's based on his design and his purpose and his will and it is to his glory god loved the world then just as much as he does now by waking, making a way through judgment for some and in regards to the cross for those given to the son by the father this is his glory Man, I realize right now that some of y'all are probably thinking on these, these objections, these things that you're stuck on, and I want to just draw out a couple of objections. One objection comes from this thought that man is generally good. And what goes along with this view of man is generally good is this view of man as sort of a free agent that goes through life with God competing for his soul and Satan competing for his soul. And that's a misunderstanding of what our Bible tells us about the nature of man in the fall. Man is not a free agent. Man, without fail, has already cast his lot with sin and Satan. We can ask Noah about the heart of man. Listen to these pictures from Noah. You don't need to turn there unless you want to. I'm just reading two excerpts. One before the flood and one after. Before the flood, we know the story. We know that the earth was corrupt. In fact, it says the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. It was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Makes sense. Send a flood, wipe everybody out. problem is, after the flood, in verse 20 of chapter 8, it says, Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, that really got it done. That flood really got rid of all wickedness. And now we can start over with a pure people, Noah and the three stooges. In fact, what it says is when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. The flood fixed nothing. Our world isn't any different post-flood. It's just drier. And there are boats everywhere now. And we have rainbows, even double rainbows. <laughs> That's not in my notes. I couldn't pass that up. <laughs> Our world is not different post flood. Somebody posted a story on Facebook this week <clears throat> that was really heartbreaking. There's a story about a woman lives across the street from a husband and a seven-year-old girl and used to be her mom. Her mom got sick and died, and the daughter, the seven-year-old daughter, is dying of the same thing the mom died of. It sounds like the kind of thing that a neighborhood would want to rally around, but this woman across the street has put pictures of the Grim Reaper holding pictures of this little girl. And they've built this truck. She uses the excuse that it's Halloween. They built this truck that has a a coffin on the back, and they park it right in front of their house, which is right across the street from where this little girl lives. I saw that story, and my first thought was, oh, that is just wickedness. That is vile. How could anyone be that wicked? That was my first thought. But then my second thought went to Jeremiah 17, verse 9. It says that the heart is deceitful above all things and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? And I thought, relative of a holy God, I'm not any different from that wicked woman. How many years have I hold on to, held on to stuff that people have done to me? Apparently, that's what was driving this woman to be so mean to this little girl and that family is the woman who died. Her mother was somehow some sort of relationship there. She was so mad. She just wanted to make this mother mad. And I thought, how many years have I held on to stupid stuff? How dark is my own heart? And I realized the flood fixed nothing. I'm not how somehow deserving of a chance at salvation on this end of the flood, because I've already cast my lot with sin and Satan. I need somebody to come in there and rescue me and drag me out of that pit. We're not free agents. I understand the objection, but it's not biblically informed. When you struggle with the issue of election, I ask the question again, who's at the center of your gospel? Man or God? Worst case, it's man. I'm a special little snowflake and God has a special plan for my life. Best case, God and his glory is at the center. Maybe an intermediate step would be that you see God's view for corporate love for the world. And then you see a corporate love for the world at the center of the gospel. I still don't think that's best. Best is God at the center of it. But hopefully at least you can move off your special little snowflake. And move to a place where you see a corporate love for the world. In the person and work of Jesus Christ. I know election is hard. Man, it's the hardest thing that I've ever had to wrestle through. I had to reckon with it when I preached John chapter 6. And our church shrunk by about a third in one Sunday. It's an affront to the natural mind. People were nice about it. I got letters from most people, or notes. I just can't take that teaching. Man, it was right there. It may have been the way it was delivered, because I was a whole lot more of a horse behind then than I am now. Y'all know that we're here. Like I was defending it. I'm just, he's taught me now to just expose it. It is what it is. To me, the issue of election is validated in the litmus test of the world. Throw that notion out there to the world that God saves some unconditionally. And the world who's conditioned by this thought of balances says, ah, that's an affront to my mind because good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad. And I'm generally good because I look down the street at my neighbor who has a truck with a coffin parked in front of it, and I'm not as bad as that joker. That's easy to do. And that's the natural mind. Doesn't like the thought of unconditional election. Present the notion that God might save some and not others. That he might call one people, the Israelites, and not the Amalekites, the Jebusites, the Perizzites, the Egyptians. Why not call them? He chose to reveal himself to Israel. Why didn't he call Abram and nobody else? Present that notion to people, and you will see some people get hacked. It's an affront to the natural mind. But I would argue that the renewed mind has a developing view not only of His holiness and what that means, and absolute and corporate sinfulness of mankind. And when those two things are in view, there's a tension where you go, ah, I need a solution. And you understand that God loved the world in this way in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And then you start looking singularly to Jesus Christ. And that there's no effort, no work that you could ever do that would ever amount to what's been done for us in Christ. I would argue it makes for white, white-hot worship. Presented to the world, though, and the world says, no thanks. Good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad. But the gospel story is bad things happen. Everybody's bad. Good things aren't supposed to happen to bad people. That no one's righteous, no, not one. The fact that he saves anybody is a scandal. (laughs) You mean he saved somebody? Look at the nation of Israel and the wickedness and vileness of Israel. They're compared to a whore, Gomer. He has a prophet marry a whore. And she goes off and has babies with other men. And that's the picture of Israel. And that's the people that he chose. man, the gospel story, our gospel is different from every other religion, and it's different from man's heart that sees these balances. I want to be better than I am bad. Every other religion in the world says if you're better than you are bad, eternal bliss is in store. Our gospel says you're bad, and what you rate is eternal damnation. But for Christ, that's our gospel. shared this story before from the pulpit. I've shared it with people before. It all depends on how you come at the gospel, whether you get this or not. There's a story, a show on TV called Stream Home Makeover. I don't watch it, but I've watched it a couple times. We don't even get that channel, I don't think. We do? I didn't know that. Well, I've watched it a couple times, and there's this main, main dude named Ty. Ty's got spikety hair. He's got a little soul patch and he's cool. He's like the man in the show. Y'all, Most of y'all know how the story goes. Somebody's living in a shack. Chances are somebody's died, or somebody got killed in combat, or cancer, or something terrible has happened to this family. And Ty with his team comes in there, and they take this shack, and on some occasions, just absolutely level it, and they build like a mansion. I mean, with specific rooms that genres that fit the character of each person living in the room. You like guitars? You're going to be walking to like a a guitar bed. Your sink is going to be a guitar where you brush your teeth. It's crazy. And the show's a good show. And the reason it's so good and the reason it's so fun to watch is because these people are bowled over. That even if you lost somebody to cancer, even if some tragedy has happened, nobody deserves the over-and-abundant, over-the-top blessing that Ty and his team provide. And nobody's living in that house saying, man, how come you didn't do this for the people down the street? Man, Ty, I'm mad at you. You should have done this for everybody in the neighborhood. Nobody's thinking like that. Instead, they're thinking, hey, man, after Ty and his crew leave, they're thinking, man, I want to have some people over to my house. I want them to see the house that I'm living in, and I want to tell them all about Ty. He's awesome with his spikety hair and soul patch. That dude blessed me above and beyond anything that I rate. That's how you come at our gospel. That's the impetus for evangelism. Let me invite you over to my house and tell you about my Christ. This blessed me above and beyond anything that anybody ever deserves. That's how we come at our gospel, realizing that nobody rates what He's done for us in Christ. The fact that He saves any is a shocker. That's a scandal. That's our gospel, and it's His glory. It's a difficult concept. I know it because I've had to reckon with it. God is glorified in it. At the end of the age, when the multitude of all the believers gather just before the marriage supper of the Lamb, all this multitude, hopefully our voices will chime in and be part of this. We'll sing together, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Salvation and glory go together. This multitude whose names were written in the book of life before time began those given by the father to the son in the glorious work of election will praise him for his salvation and give glory to our god they go together and when we enjoy this now we're fulfilling the prayer that he prayed 2000 years ago of being glorified through it answered prayer right here right now if your heart is singing over this notion that's called worship and it's answered prayer the second facet that we'll consider this morning is in verse 4 of chapter 17 if you want to turn back there and see it it's briefer shorter I don't know if briefer is a word But we're going to consider the facet of his completed work. In verse 4, it says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. It's hard for us to really conceptualize or connect to this thing that he's saying here because very few of you are doing, men are doing what your daddies did. Some of you might be. But in this day and age... All men, almost without fail, went into their dad's business. If dad was a carpenter, son became a carpenter. If dad was a blacksmith, son became a blacksmith. And in doing their father's work, and in continuing their father's work, they brought glory to their fathers. Turn to John chapter 5. <clears throat> this is so sweet. I love this. John chapter 5. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids. Keep in mind the thing we just talked about, election, as I continue reading. In these colonnades, there lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Here, Ephesians 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Verse 5 One man who was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had only been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. What they believed is that an angel would stir up the pool at Bethesda, and if you managed to be the dude that flopped yourself over into the pool first, you'd get healed. Then he said, Man, nobody's there to even help me flop over into the water. Somebody else flops in there first. And Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and Walk. That's just a John 5 version of John 11. Lazarus come forth. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. The problem is the next verse. Now that day was the Sabbath. Picking up his bed and walking, carrying his mat, he's breaking the Sabbath. Bad deal. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, "Uh, uh, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you're well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Watch what Jesus says next. He says to them, my father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Not because he broke the Sabbath, but because what he's saying there. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. There was an argument in this day between Jewish leaders that God potentially broke his own law by working on the Sabbath. Because if God didn't work, if he parked it on Saturday, their Sabbath, then like galaxies and stuff would just fall apart all these balances within your body, mitochondria and red blood cells and all these pH balances and all that stuff would just fall apart if God parked it on Saturday. So this argument is taking place between Jewish leaders in this time that God would have to work on the Sabbath to keep the world afloat, so he can't break his own law. So where they landed was on this notion that God has the entire universe in his domicile. If you're familiar with the Jewish law regarding Sabbath breaking, you know that you could do some work within your own domicile? You're allowed to do that? That's because of their view on God, not breaking his own law, but working within his own domicile. So the man healed was told by Christ to carry his mat home, in their view, breaking the Sabbath. And Jesus says in verse 17, my father is working and I'm working too. And then it says in the next verse, they understand it's not, they're not upset just because of their perception of breaking the Sabbath, but because he's claiming to be God. He's saying, my father works within his domicile on the Sabbath. That's all I'm doing. This is my domicile. John chapter 1 verse 3 says, all things were made through Christ and without him was not anything, anything made that was made. He's working within his own authority as creator. And he's glorified in that work by doing what the Father does. When he makes that statement of his glory, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, he is glorifying his Father by working within his own domicile. It's just what he does. That's just who he is as God the Son. On the nature of his work, His work is fruitful in contrast with ours. John chapter 1 verse 17 tells us this. I want you to hang in there. I know we're moving toward the end of this sermon. I want you to hang. I know it's been a challenging one. It's been challenging to preach. I know it's hard to listen to, but this is the goods right here. Chapter 1 verse 17 says, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. These first few verses, this first section in John chapter 1 is sort of like a key to understanding the rest of the book, including this prayer in John chapter 17. And when he's saying, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, he is pointing toward a finished work work of what he's going to accomplish tomorrow in the cross, in contrast with our feeble works of the law. Listen to this grouping of passages. Just listen. Romans chapter 3 verse 20, for by works of the law, as in what Moses gave us, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law Only, since through the law, the law comes the knowledge of sin. The only thing the law did for me is let me know that I'm a sinner. (laughs) Later on in verse 28, he says, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Galatians chapter 2, verse 16 Says we know that a person's not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ, as in his finished work, not by the works of the law, as in our feeble works, because by works of the law no one will be justified. In chapter 3 verse 10, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. That notion of this scale where we hope that there's more good than bad, according to our Bibles, if you've got anything on this plate up here, relative holiness and justice, you're toast. Toast. If you have any bad, according to this, all things written in the book of the law, you got to abide by all of them? Man, I've got some bad up there. I need a solution for a worker that's outside me because my feeble works won't satisfy. Writer of Hebrews referring to our work says this about our works. It says, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God hear finished work, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. We've got to listen to our consciences and realize that our works are lame. The best we have to offer is filthy rags. Show me the best person in the world and I'll show you selfishness. I'll show you a dark heart that is desperately in need of deliverance by a true worker who can truly get the job done. Our works are unfinished and tainted and can't satisfy God. But Christ is glorified in finishing the work that we couldn't do. And this is not because God is hard to please, but because he is holy and he is just and because he knows all things. We can't hide our selfish. Intentions. If you think for a moment that man, I'm not that bad. Let me take a public picture of every thought that you've entertained over the last week and put it up here on the screen. Every thought. Just let it scroll. There be anything there that you're ashamed of? There's no scale. We need to work outside of ourselves. To see God as loving apart from his holiness and justice is to miss how he loved us in Christ, in the person and work of Jesus Christ by sending his son to obey a law perfectly, complete a work that we couldn't complete on a cross on Calvary. No one else could do that. And when he said, it is finished, that's what he meant. The work is finished. It is accomplished. It is completed, and He is glorified in that finished work. His followers forevermore will shed our filthy rags of our best efforts, and rather we wear the white linen of His righteousness. That's His glory. He's glorified not just in doing some work, but in completing and finishing a work that no one else could do. He got the job done. Glory to him forever and ever and evermore. Let's pray. Lord, what a shocking, shocking gospel. Lord, when we really consider your glory in giving life to those that you've given to the Son, giving life undeserved, giving life unmerited, giving life according to the kind intention of your will, according to your plan and your purpose, For your glorious grace. Lord, we are ravaged by that if we truly take it in. Lord, I see and know based on the people that I've walked with and the person that I am, that you choose the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. Not the finest, not the shiniest. But you come for the sick and the wounded and the troubled and the frail, and the feeble. Lord, it causes us to marvel. We enjoy you in that sweet plan of election. And Lord, we sweet, we we are just blown away by the marvel of a finished work. In contrast with our feeble, frail work, When we see that your son did what you do. Or when we see him completing a work that we couldn't finish. We see him working within his own domicile as God the son. Lord, we enjoy him this morning. He is glorified in that. We celebrate with those words, it is finished, and we count them finished as well. And we walk not as adding to those works, but in response to those works. Or we want to be holy and walk in a manner worthily in response to that work, never adding to it, never earning it, never even maintaining it. Lord, we thank you so much for this unbelievable prayer. In advance, we thank you for what's in store on this journey as we low crawl through such a rich conversation between you and your son. Lord, I pray for this church. I pray for this pastor. I pray for the other elders, for the deacons. I pray that this will be a special time in the life of this church where we have a higher view of you and a greater, more robust understanding of what Christ has done for us. And, Lord, that it will find purchase in transforming lives, transforming marriages, changing our disposition and our outlook on money-making, on how we spend our time, on priorities. Lord, I pray as a result of the time that we spend together that you will make worshipers and grow worshipers. We love you. We pray all these things in the finished name or the finished work of Christ. And by his name, amen.
1: We're about to partake of the Lord's Supper, and one of the things I love about our corporate worship gatherings is it causes us to come and to sit and to listen. What you've just heard is some of the most wonderful, timeless truth the world knows. How much time did you spend this week thinking about things like what you heard this morning? How much time were you able to even give to to thinking about truths so great and so wonderful? The display of God's glory envelops us continually. It's not just something that we get to just observe going on around us. It it, it wraps us up in it. It's unwavering. It's completely relentless. This means that there is never a time that's not absolutely perfect for wholehearted worship. His glory is not just something that we observe. It's something that we're caught up in. Yet sometimes we become caught up in other things, lesser things. And the things that you have heard this morning are things that are designed to affect the lesser things. It's not supposed to be the other way around. When we partake of the Lord's Supper, we are observing and obeying that which God has given us to make sure that he's not forgotten. It's not his intention to be overlooked. As a church, we get together a lot throughout the week and at least once weekly, particularly on Sunday mornings. We take this supper in remembrance of him. We don't get so caught up in the world that we forget the amazing things that he's done. Remember John 17 says there, not of the world because I am not of the world. By God's design, we're more like him, not the world. Sanctification is a process of being made to be more like Christ. We remember, and by his design, remembrance turns us into better observers. When we remember what he has done, remember who he is, we remember what the plan is, it turns us into better observers as well, where along the journey, we're saying, yes, this is all God's glory. This is what he is doing. Rather than being conformed to the world, our attention is drawn to eternal and divine things, and we're transformed by the renewal of our minds, which in turn glorifies God according to his created purpose. I read Psalm 29. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. When you hear words like ascribe and a tribute, you're saying, God, you caused this to happen, and I'll not miss it. God, you've caused your glory to be made known, and I'll not overlook it. Ascribe to the Lord the Lord, the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders the Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Do you think the Lord wants his voice to be heard? The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forests bare. And in his temple all cry glory. That's our response to the voice of the Lord. And in his temple, all cry glory. Consider what we talked about Noah this morning. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. In First Corinthians 11, Paul reiterates what Jesus said in John 17. Jesus says, I speak on behalf of my Father. What my Father has given me, I'm giving to you, and Paul's saying, what I heard from Jesus, what he heard from his Father, I'm telling you, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. Hear John 17 in that, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Christ states, I am the bread of life, in John 6. In specific remembrance of Christ Jesus, our bread of life, take and eat. The cleansing blood of work done entirely outside of us in specific remembrance of Christ Jesus, take and drink. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for sweet truth that you give us ability to understand. I pray that as we uh, continue to... uh, set our minds on the things above and not on the world, to be transformed by the renewal of our minds and not conformed to the world. As we hear these truths this morning that are very countercultural and otherworldly, I pray for understanding in them. I'm I'm thankful for a Holy Spirit that has promised to go with us and to shed light in the dark areas of, of misunderstanding and foolishness. Lord, we are thankful that your glory and salvation have everything to do with each other. Lord, we pray that as we um, give of tithes and offerings, Lord, we, uh, we do so in response as an act of worship. And I pray, Lord, for wholeheartedness in that this morning. We love you very much and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: I know this is a doozy this morning. A couple things I want you to know about. First of all, I want you to know that this is not a new teaching on election. In fact, it's a new teaching dis- to dismiss election. It's only been in the last hundred years or so that the church has begun to be troubled with teaching like this. That there are some people who have held on to it and see the glory in it. Um, being a new, ch- a relatively new church in this community, we've only been here eight years. Relative compared to a lot of churches that have been here for decades. There's the potential to look at a new church with a new message, and it's not a new message, it's an old one. I don't want to be guilty of chronological snobbery to think that the oldest is the best in every case. But you need to realize, if you want to dismiss election, you're dismissing what the church has held on to for about 1,900 years, and a lot of the church has held on to 2,000 years. It is the glory of the gospel. And I will not apologize for it. These stories of like Noah weren't God just saying, man, I messed up. I think I'm going to start over. They served a purpose. And the purpose was to show us what the gospel looks like. If we handle all these old teachings from these Old Testament stories as just character studies, then we miss out on this story that's been unfolding. We don't know, we don't understand our gospel because we haven't looked for it in that. If you haven't looked to Israel to try and understand us, then you're just confused. It's like somebody telling you the punchline of a joke, but you don't know the joke. You know it's supposed to be funny. So you might laugh along. Sounds jokish, but you don't get it. That's what happens if you don't look for God working over the ages and understand why did He let humankind get that bad? Why did He call Noah and three stooges? I'm telling you. Read the rest of the story. They're stooges. Noah is an early picture of Christ. He's a type of Christ. Where this family is saved because of their relationship to Noah. Not because there's anything special redeeming in them. And then the earth is just as corrupt afterward as it was before. To show us that we need to be looking forward to a new Christ. A new Noah. And that's our Jesus. And Peter writes, tells us, that flood is coming again, but it won't be water next time. It's going to be fire And the earth will be deluged with fire. And we want to be on that piece of wood called the cross with a better Noah. Man, those stories serve a purpose. If you engage them and if you surrender to this thing that I'll admit, when I first taught it and preached it, I kind of didn't even like it. But if you surrender to it, say, okay, I will believe something that I may not even like and trust that something might be true just because Ben McGraw doesn't like it. If truth is only relative to what I can get my head around and what I like, then all truth is dependent on Ben McGraw. I like the thought of truth being out there and static, like a piton driven into granite, because I'm all over the place. I want to find a timeless truth that I can get my hand around, not truth as I deem it to be true. But I surrendered first and saying, I don't like it, but I'll trust it. There's something outside of me that I don't get. And when I surrendered to it, I saw my Bible that looked like sort of a collection of stories and things that I didn't really understand just go like this. Where all these stories, they fit together and you go, ah, I get it. <laughs> now I get the scandal of the gospel that he would save any. Now I get the cross, I won't for a moment say that somebody that doesn't believe in election doesn't love Jesus. I won't for a moment say that. But I'm going to tell you right now, man, that's his glory. You're passing up on really an awesome thing if it's difficult. And you say, I'm not going to listen to that. I hope you paid attention where all we went in the word today. It wasn't like a bunch of opinion. It was okay. Turn here. Turn here. Turn here. Turn, turn here. Turn. Turn here. Turn here. Referring to one passage after another. That GPS picture. The GPS works on multiple satellites. It won't give you a reading on one satellite because it could be anywhere. If your theology is based on John three sixteen, you could be anywhere. There's a lot more story. Is it true? Absolutely. Does it reveal the truth completely? No. No verse does. That's why we have a whole Bible to eat and to engage together a full council that fits. It works when you surrender to these difficult teachings. Man, it's his glory. I'll share a passage with you, and then I'll, I want to have someone I want to introduce for membership. Ezekiel chapter 11. I told you that, that Israel was so vile that he... Compared them to being a bunch of whores. Basically being a whore as a people. I know that's strong language. It's, by, it's biblical language. We need to get the strength of it. And go, ugh. That's ugly. Because it's in getting that. That we realize our story. You listen to what he says about this whore. He says, I will give them one heart. Sound, I mean. John 17 right there, praying for oneness. I will give them one heart and a new spirit. John 16. A new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh. Here the heart is deceitful above all else. It is desperately wicked. Who can know it? I will remove that heart of stone from their flesh and give... From their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. I'm going to take that rocky, dark heart out and give them a new heart that they may walk in my statutes. Notice the order of March. You get a new heart, you walk in his statutes, you keep his rules, you obey him because that's just who you are. Obedience becomes totally different. Not to earn anything or maintain anything. It just comes who you are. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. Man, that's the gospel. That's his glory. Man, it's good news when you really connect to the big picture. When you swim with the elephants, I guarantee it's going to be confusing and challenging. But man, there's treasure out there in the deep. It's easy to dismiss teachings like this. We can't know that. You know, we'll know those kind of things when we get to glory. Yet there's gobs of passage and story that's taking us to these truths that we can know and treasure. You can know. Man, I want to urge you. If you're wrestling with some things from this morning and want to talk about them, there's three other elders that I guarantee would be game to sit down with you along with myself, not all at once. You're not that special. (laughs) No, I'm kidding. We would if we had to, I guess. But I know that any of us would be willing to sit down with you. There's small group leaders that would be willing to sit down with you. Some of them are going, oh, please don't give me that time to talk through that stuff. It's scary, scary stuff, but it's good stuff, man. Treasure. Ashley, come on up. Ashley Everhart's coming up here. I met with Ashley this week. Ashley has been worshiping with Point for about the last seven years, off and on. And um, she has grown up in this town, and uh, pretty much, yeah. yeah. And she goes to school at Commerce. She's going to graduate in December. What, I didn't even ask you what your degree will be in. Uh, criminal justice. Criminal justice. All right. You going to be a policeman? Uh, no. Lawyer?
1: No. Just
0: a criminal. No, I get
1: a master's in counseling. In counseling. <laughs> Good. Yes. Yeah, just a criminal. <laughs>
0: That's the only other thing I can think of, criminal justice. <laughs> be just. You'll be just. Yes. Yeah, um, Ashley has been uh, <clears throat> worshiping with us off and on for the last seven, or year, seven years or so. And uh, she said in the last year she's really been burdened to just say, man, I want to live for Christ. I, I've kind of been dabbling in this thing, and I want to be all in. And uh, in the last year or so, she said that she has really been pursuing him. And part of that pursuit is she wants to make public... Uh, communication to to this body that she stands with us in agreement, and uh, she has um, read through our covenant, and she agrees with what we view church to mean, and she wants this to be public this morning. And do y'all have a chance to come up and meet her afterwards? And um, an official way to be walking together. We've been sort of unofficially hanging out together, but we've been um, common law, I guess, of kind of getting married today <laughs> and joining in covenant. So as a people, Ashley's ours. And as a people, we're Ashley. So uh, I see in Ashley, as I um, have seen in Eric, I introduced last week, uh, young people, 24 years old, that want to know and be known. That's what church is. Church is not anonymous. That's a paradox. Those don't go together. Church is you're known and and knowing. And I see that in them right now. So I encourage you to get to know them. Y'all stand, and I'll dismiss us. Come up and meet Ashley afterward. Lord, we are thankful for the time we've had together this morning. It has been a, um, a big meal, and I just pray that the Holy Spirit will walk us through what we've heard, that he will guide us into all truth. I pray for opportunities to talk about things and process things and chew on things and consider things together. I pray that our Bibles will be in our laps. They'll be open, and we'll be engaging your word, looking for your truth. Lord, I'm thankful that the Spirit... Um, gives us insight. I know there's no man that can explain things, but the Holy Spirit might use a man or might use a conversation or might use a sermon. And I pray that that would be true of this message this morning, that the Holy Spirit has worked through it and that he will continue to. Lord, we pray together for Ashley and we are so grateful for the chance to walk with her. I pray that she is equipped each week for worship and wonder. I pray that she can wade with children and swim with elephants. Lord, I pray that she enjoys both and that she is walking in um, amazement of the gospel. Lord, I pray, too, that she sees the elders as approachable and has a chance to walk with them and, uh, and us. I pray, too, that she will continue to be known and knowing through small groups or just relationships that might develop outside of small groups. Lord, we are thankful for the privilege and chance to walk together. We love you, Lord. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Y'all come meet Ashley. Welcome officially. Yeah,
1: Thank yeah. You.